We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40. This is the word of the Lord. And it came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream, a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you. Please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand, and he he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Well, the grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, as you know, I like to begin a lot of my sermons with a quote. So here is this morning's quote from the famed Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, who once said, Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And that's a pretty accurate description of how discernment is supposed to be used to know the difference between that which is right and that which is almost right. Discernment is important. It's important skill for the believer to develop. We are called to be a discerning people. 
Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the word prove here is not one that we regularly use in this way. We use uh, the word prove to mean that you've demonstrated uh, the truth of something. And so uh, if you get pulled over on driving down the road and the officer asks for proof of insurance, you give him the slip that's hopefully in your glove box or your console that shows that your insurance policy is in effect and is current, and that proves that you have insurance. But the word that is used here in Romans 12, 2 is used in a slightly different way. Uh, to prove in this sense means to examine, to scrutinize, or to test something to get at the truth of it. Uh, the, the English Standard Version actually translates it as discern the perfect, the, the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The idea is that As our minds are renewed by the work of the Spirit and the study of the Scriptures, we will be able to discern the difference between things that are good and acceptable in the sight of God and those which are not. So discernment is part and parcel to the Christian life. Paul tells the believers in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21, to test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So this is a calling for all believers to be discerning, to to know the difference so that we can cling to what is good and abstain from that which is not. And so one of the benefits of the practice of discernment is that it gives the Christian the freedom to live life in this world with both confidence and joy. Because discernment allows us to recognize and to choose those things which please God and to abstain from those which do not. To the church in Ephesus, the apostle says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. This is a call to spiritual discernment and a warning of what will happen if we are not discerning. We'll be deceived by false teachers, unstable in our doctrine and our beliefs. We'll shift from one opinion to the next, depending on whatever is popular right now. This could be a commentary on the state of much of Christianity in America today. Whatever the current bestseller is, or whatever the popular megachurch pastor is teaching at the moment is what everyone is convinced of today, but it will be something different next week. That shifting foundation is a result of a lack of discernment. The apostle says that we lack that discernment because we are immature in the faith. Don't be like children. Have discernment. Hebrews tells us the same thing in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So discernment is a mark of Christian maturity. 
and it takes training and practice to develop. Now, to be fair, as we think about this issue of discernment, there is a gift of discernment, a spiritual gift. It's listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it is called the discerning of spirits. But it's helpful to think about it like this. Later in that same chapter, one of the gifts that's listed is the gift of helps. Just because there is a spiritual gift of helps doesn't mean that the rest of us who don't have that gift are exempt from being helpful. Right? No Christian should refuse to help someone by saying, well, that's not my spiritual gift. In the same way, no Christian should excuse spiritual immaturity or a lack of discernment by saying, well, it's not my gift. It's a calling and a command for all Christians to grow and strive for maturity in the faith and to practice discernment. But there are those who do have the gift of discernment, and that's a good thing. The church needs people who have that gift, who can pick up a little quicker than the rest of us on a false teaching and kind of warn us and give us a heads up, who can spot a spirit of strife or division and warn the rest of the church. But we're all to work towards developing that sort of spiritual discernment. So as we discuss uh, this issue of discernment this morning, we need a definition. Well, the dictionary defines discernment simply as the ability to judge well. The ability to judge well. But what's missing from that definition is the standard by which we judge. How do we determine if something is good or evil? How do we determine if something is right or almost right without a standard? So for the Christian, discernment has to be more than just judging well. We have to define the standard by which we judge. Of course, that standard is God and His Word, uh, the truth that He has revealed to us. The best definition that I've seen for this issue of spiritual discernment comes from Sinclair Ferguson when he says, discernment is learning to think God's thoughts after him, practically and spiritually. It means having a sense of how things look in God's eyes and seeing them in some measure uncovered and laid bare. Now to do that, to think God's thoughts after him or to see things the way God sees them, we're going to need to study. We're going to need to study the scriptures where God has revealed his thoughts to us so that we can think his thoughts after him, that we can begin to develop godly patterns of thought and, and godly eyesight to behold things in the way that God sees them. Now we can also, though, learn from those who have the gift of discernment. Joseph is one of those. There are a, a handful of individuals in the Scripture who clearly have the gift of discernment. Daniel comes to mind, Solomon, Joshua, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. But Joseph is an example of one who has, I believe, the gift of discernment. And since we're in the book of Genesis, in the life of Joseph, he is our example this morning. And so here is my thesis from the, the example given to us here in Genesis chapter 40, is that the practice of discernment as a spiritual discipline 
requires faith, wisdom, and courage. So as we explore this episode in the life of Joseph and learn about discernment from him, we will see these things demonstrated for us. We'll actually see six components of Joseph's discernment. Now, just as chapters 38 and 39 worked together uh, regarding repentance and resisting temptation, so also chapters 40 and 41 work together to teach us about discernment. So we'll be dealing with this same subject again next week, Lord willing, uh, with a slightly different perspective. But let's start this morning with Joseph uh, and the subject of dreams. Joseph himself was a dreamer of dreams. You'll remember in chapter 37, uh, he had two dreams uh, that told of his rise to prominence, of his rise to authority uh, in which his brothers would bow down before him. And now here we are in chapter 40, and we find him interpreting the dreams of others. And again, in chapter 41, he will do the same. So let's quickly review this narrative, because there are a couple of important details to notice, and then we'll look at the six components of Joseph's discernment. Joseph, you'll remember, had been put in prison at the end of the previous chapter. And we saw a pattern in Joseph's life that he is repeatedly elevated to the position of second in command. And so he's in prison, and yet he has risen to second in command. There's a keeper of the prison, a prison warden, if you like. And he's put Joseph in charge of the daily routines of the prison. All of the prisoners are under Joseph's authority. Whatever they do, Joseph is organizing it and in charge of it. Now, the prison itself, we said, was under the authority of Potiphar, Joseph's old master. Potiphar is the chief of the royal police for Pharaoh. Now, two of Pharaoh's officers have offended him in some way, the butler and the baker. Scripture doesn't tell us in what way they offended him, but Pharaoh is upset with these two men, and so he has them thrown in prison. Now, Josephus and other historians suggest to us that there was some sort of plot that was uncovered to poison the Pharaoh, and that because the butler and the baker were in charge of his household and in charge of his food supply, It was presumed that one or both of these men was involved in the plot, but it it wasn't known which one. So they were both cast into prison pending an investigation by Potiphar, the chief of the police. So that's one possible explanation for why these men are in prison. And I find it fairly compelling because it makes sense of some of the details. But these two men, high-ranking officers of Pharaoh, uh, are put in prison and they are given into the care of Joseph. Potiphar himself actually assigns Joseph to care for these two men. We see that in verse 4. And the captain of the guard, that's Potiphar, charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. So they're put in prison, but they're treated fairly well. Joseph is told to take care of them and to see that their needs are met. But while they're under his care, they each have a dream in the same night. And they obviously believe these dreams to have some significance. But being in prison, they don't have access to Potiphar's court or to Pharaoh's court. 
They don't have access to the Egyptian magicians and wise men in order to interpret the dreams for them. So they're uneasy. They know the dreams are significant. They don't know what they mean. Joseph comes in in the morning. He finds out about it, and he offers to interpret for them. So they tell him their dreams, and he gives them an interpretation, and then events happen exactly as he said they would. Now, Joseph is in this prison. He's obviously not terribly mistreated at this point. He's basically running the prison. But he doesn't want to be in prison. And since Potiphar put him there, the only person in the entire land of Egypt with the authority to take Joseph out of that prison is Pharaoh, the only one whose authority exceeds Potiphar's. And so Joseph asks the butler when he returns to his job, to remember me, show kindness to me, make Pharaoh aware of me, hoping that Pharaoh would take him out of the prison. But the chapter ends with the butler forgetting Joseph and leaving him in prison. Now, as I said, there are a few people in the scriptures who stand out as having a gift of discernment, and Joseph is one of them. He interprets dreams, discerning their meaning. But he does more than simply that. There's actually uh, three examples of Joseph's discernment here in this text, but the interpreting of the dreams is the one that gets most of the attention. But let's look at uh, the six components of discernment that we can see in Joseph's life and see if we can learn to apply them in our own. First, begin with reviewing our definition from Sinclair Ferguson of discernment. Discernment is learning to think God's thoughts after him. Learning to think God's thoughts after them, to see things with the, to, to sense how things look in God's eyes, seeing them the way God sees them. So it means to think in godly ways. We are to practice this spiritual discipline of discernment, and I said that it requires faith, wisdom, and courage. So if we understand wisdom to begin with the fear of the Lord, and that faith is found in trusting God, trusting Christ, Thinking in godly ways means meditating on God's word and being in close relationship with him, then it should come as no surprise to us that the first component of discernment would be to have a clean conscience. And this is what the previous two chapters have taught us how to do, to avoid, resist temptation, and to repent when we do sin. But we begin with a clear conscience. Look at verse 15. Joseph, speaking to the butler, says, For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. I think it's important to start from this place of holiness, purity before God. Joseph wasn't perfect. We know that he was a sinner like the rest of us. But he was innocent of the crimes that he was imprisoned for. He had a clear conscience before God. If he was going to discern the meaning of these two men's dreams. He would need wisdom and insight given to him by God, the giver of dreams, and that would be clouded with a guilty conscience. But we have that example, as I said, in the previous two chapters of how to resist temptation, how to repent when we do sin so that we can maintain a clear conscience before the Lord. If your mind is clouded with unrepented sin with guilt 
it will not be easy to think God's thoughts after him. The Apostle Paul encourages the Philippian church that they have been a blessing to him in his ministry. They have loved him with an extravagant love, but then he says to them, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things are excellent that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. His point is that love, in concert with knowledge and discernment, would help preserve them from offense against God. So a clear conscience before God is a necessary component of exercising spiritual discipline, and it creates a sort of feedback loop. If you have a clear conscience you are better able to exercise spiritual discernment, which allows you to see and discern the difference between right and wrong, right and almost right, and therefore to avoid error and avoid sin, which helps you to maintain a clear conscience. But we know that however we progress in sanctification, we will still wrestle with temptation and with sin. So we need to make use of the example given to us by Joseph and Judah in the previous two chapters on how to resist temptation and repent of our sins so that we may come before God with a clear conscience and seek to think his thoughts after him. The second component of discernment is faith. And again, there's no surprise here. 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We must be men and women of faith if we are to have spiritual discernment. Spiritually dead individuals can't discern spiritual things, only those who are alive in Christ. When we put our trust in Christ and His righteousness rather than the filthy rags of our own righteous attempts at righteousness, then we're made alive together with Him in His resurrection. The Holy Spirit indwells us and gives us the spiritual senses to be able to discern spiritual things. Joseph's example of this is astounding if you stop and think about it. Look at verse 8. And they said to him, We each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Now, right off, we note that Joseph obviously has faith in God, faith that God will help him to discern and interpret these two dreams. But beyond that, there are two aspects of the faith that Joseph exemplifies here that really struck me as I meditated on this text for the last couple of weeks. First, it struck me that Joseph doesn't have one of these. He doesn't have one of these. He doesn't have a pocket New Testament. He doesn't have a single scroll of the Old Testament. It hadn't been written yet. Joseph doesn't have the Bible. He is dependent for his knowledge of God on what he has learned from his father and his grandfather and from his own experience. He's dependent. I'm sure that the promises that God made to Abraham were passed down in the family, memorized by them. So in some sense, he had the word of God and had probably memorized portions of it. But as I reflected on his faith in a foreign land, enslaved 
in prison with no Bible. I was reminded of Jesus' words to Thomas in the upper room. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus said this to Thomas, surely with reference to you and I, who have not seen Christ in the flesh and yet have believed on him. But I think they apply to Joseph as well. Joseph, who had not seen the Messiah, who didn't even have a written Bible, and yet had faith. The second aspect of Joseph's faith that really astounded me was realizing that about 10 years have passed since he had had his dreams. Remember, Joseph had these prophetic dreams from God telling him that he would one day hold a position of authority, that his brothers would bow down before him. Ten years later, he's a falsely accused slave in a foreign prison. And yet he still believes in prophetic dreams. That's pretty amazing. He still has faith that those dreams are from God and they will be fulfilled. I pray that the Lord would grant me a gift of faith so strong. And if we are to have spiritual discernment, we must have faith in the God who grants it. We must believe not only to the saving of our souls, but we must trust Him to reveal to us spiritual truth. We must have faith in the sufficiency of the Scriptures, their effectiveness to produce wisdom in those who search them diligently. We can't just say, oh yes, I have faith in God. It must be accompanied by works. And in this case, to truly believe that God has spoken in his word means that we really trust the scriptures to be the truth of God, to instruct us to think God's thoughts after him. So we would give ourselves to the study of scripture so that we might know him and his truth all the better. Faith is a necessary component of spiritual discernment. And this leads me to the third component of discernment, which is a knowledge of God and man. To see things as God sees them, to think his thoughts after him, and to mark the distinction between right and wrong or between right and almost right, as Spurgeon said, requires both a knowledge of God and a knowledge of man and of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And we see this in the life of Joseph. Again, there are three instances in which Joseph displays discernment in this chapter. The most obvious one is in discerning the interpretation of the dreams. But the first one actually happens in verse 6. Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. Joseph is perceptive. He's aware of others around him. He's able to discern their spiritual condition because he's paying attention. One of the reasons I believe that we often have trouble with this is because we're too think busy thinking about ourselves. This is Hopefully this is true of all of us and it's not just me, but sometimes in conversation don't you find yourself kind of half listening to the other person because you're thinking about what you're going to say? We're not listening to understand, we're listening to respond. And so our attention is divided because while they're still talking, we're already thinking about the next words that I'm going to say. We're so focused on ourselves 
what we feel, what we think, what we want to speak, that we fail to give our attention to the person that's really talking to us. And if we were to apply this to the act of evangelism, this will not serve us well. I once read Francis Schaeffer as saying that if he had one hour to evangelize someone, he would spend 55 minutes asking them questions and listening, and then five minutes sharing the gospel. And his point was, he wanted to practice discernment. He wanted to understand how this person thinks, what they believe, how are they hurting, how will the gospel speak to their needs, what possible objections might they have. And then discerning that, he would be able to effectively speak the gospel to their hearts. Listening and discerning is at least equally important with speaking. And that's just one example as it applies to evangelism. But the same can be applied to protecting yourself, your family, and even the church from false teaching, from cultural sin. We, we must pay attention. We must think carefully. Think about the teaching that we listen to. There's all kinds of teaching available online that we can just stream into our homes, that we can download and entertainment is a form of teaching. What books do you let your children read? What TV shows do you let them watch? All these things, whether it's Sunday school material or, or a teaching series on a church's website, whether it's a TV show, a book that we're reading, all these things are written by people who believe things. And the things that they believe are going to come through in what they, the content that they have created. As Christians, we must be discerning about what we consume and what we allow our children to consume. What worldview is it putting forward? What morality is it approving of? What sexual ethic is it encouraging? To discern those things, we must know the standard of right and wrong as God defines it in his word so that we can think his thoughts after him. What does God approve of? How does this line up with the scripture? And we must pay attention and think critically about these things. Consider the example of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Paul shows up in their town preaching Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And it says that the Bereans practiced discernment. They received Paul's teaching eagerly with gladness and then they went home and it says they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. That's discernment. They were comparing what he said to the scriptures to, to try and think God's thoughts after him and see is this really true or not. Or consider the, the men that David gathers to himself. Remember, he gathers a, a, an army to himself, and it includes uh, specific men with specific skills that come from each of the 12 tribes. And it says that a number of men of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, came and joined David's army. These men of Issachar had discernment. That's the skill that they brought to David's army. They understood or discerned the times, the cultural moment in which they lived, and they knew as a result what Israel ought to do. They knew right from almost right, and therefore they were able to help 
counsel David to make wise decisions. And that's what Joseph is doing here. He understands the times. He's aware of what's going on around him. He has meditated long on the character and the nature of God. Therefore, he's able to make discerning judgments about the times in which he lives. He sees that these two men are disturbed and saddened by something. Well, they're in prison. Of course they're sad. But Joseph's more aware than that. He's aware that something is different this particular morning. And so he asks them about it, and they tell him about their dreams. And and he says, God can provide an interpretation. And so he asked them to tell him their dreams. Now, the butler goes first, and the baker, if you catch up on this, the baker seems a little reluctant, doesn't he? he? He's not willing to share his dream until he sees that the butler's interpretation was a good one. Look at verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream. Why is he reluctant to share his dream? It could be that he was afraid the interpretation wouldn't be good. It could be that he had some guilt in his spirit. And so he's like, I don't know about this dream. A little hesitant to know what it really means. In the butler's dream, as he relates it to Joseph, the number three proves to be significant enough that he mentions it. Three branches on the grapevine. Other than that, the dream's pretty straightforward, isn't it? The butler gathers some grapes, makes wine, and serves it to Pharaoh. That was his job. As the chief of the butlers, he probably oversaw the entire process from the management of the vineyards to the production of the wine, the storage of it, the service in the palace, and it seems that he served Pharaoh with his own hands. So the dream seems fairly easy to interpret aside from figuring out that the three branches means three days. Why not three weeks or three months or three years? Why three days? Well, there's no doubt that God gave Joseph a supernatural ability to discern the meaning of the dreams, but it's also likely that Joseph knew Pharaoh's birthday was coming up in three days' time. He had previously run Potiphar's entire estate. Potiphar being Pharaoh's chief of police, there's no doubt he was involved in previous birthday celebrations. And while Joseph was managing his household and estate for the last 10 years, Joseph must have known when Pharaoh's birthday was. And he probably knew that on his birthday it was Pharaoh's habit to throw a festival and to give out annual performance reviews and promotions to his servants. Joseph understood the times. He discerned that if these two men have been placed into my care to be treated well in the prison, it's probably because Pharaoh's not entirely certain if one or both of them are guilty or innocent, which means Potiphar is probably conducting an investigation and the announcement of the findings of his investigation might very well happen on Pharaoh's birthday during this feast. And knowing that God gives prophetic dreams and that three was a significant number in the dream, Joseph discerns the true meaning. He predicted that the butler would be found innocent and restored to his station at the feast. The baker is then encouraged and shares his dream. And again, three is a significant number. But notice that in his dream, the baker doesn't serve Pharaoh. Instead, birds eat the baked goods that he had prepared for Pharaoh. And we know from other passages of Scripture that it was common 
for birds to descend on a battlefield and to pluck at the flesh of the dead. Joseph likely knew this as well from his time as a shepherd. He had probably seen birds gathered around the body of a dead animal in the field. So with spirit-inspired wisdom and discernment, he interprets the dream, understanding that the baker will be executed for his offense against Pharaoh and that the birds will eat his flesh. Joseph obviously has a gift of discernment to interpret these dreams, but you can see that a good deal of his discernment came from simply understanding the times, understanding the circumstances and knowing the mind of God who gives prophetic dreams, a God of justice who would see the guilty punished and the innocent freed. But this is not the end of Joseph's discernment. The fourth component of his discernment is his willingness to act. He's willing to use his discernment to actually interpret the dreams. He didn't have to do that. He could have ignored it. Instead, he acted And there's another act of discernment on Joseph's part here in chapter 40 that's fairly easy to overlook. In fact, some commentators actually mistake this act of discernment for a lack of faith. They conclude that because Joseph asked the butler for help, that he wasn't fully trusting God. If he really trusted God to free him from the prison, he wouldn't be asking the butler for help. But I think it's more likely that Joseph discerned that this was God's doing. God put him in prison, raised him to a position of second in command, and then he put these two men under his care, gave them both prophetic dreams on the same night, dreams that said one of them would be raised back to his position of being the personal attendant of Pharaoh, the one man in the entire empire with the authority to bring Joseph out of the prison. Joseph discerned that God was in this, and so he acted. As John Gill says in his commentary, nor is he to be blamed as if he sought help of men and not of God, as he is by some writers, both Christian and Jewish, particularly by the Targum of Jonathan. He's quoting now a Jewish commentator. Quote, Joseph lost his superior confidence and retained the confidence of men. And then Gill continues, means are always to be used in order to the end in subordination to the divine will. What Gill is saying is that Joseph saw the situation. He saw an opportunity to ask for help from this man who had been put in his care in the prison. And that by doing so, Joseph wasn't displaying a lack of faith. Rather, he's displaying confidence in the providence of God to arrange matters in such a way that he would have an opportunity to ask this man for help. God uses means to accomplish his will. God used the means of the hatred of Joseph's brothers to send him to Egypt in order to prepare and preserve the family through the coming famine. In this case, God used the means of providentially arranging these circumstances so that Joseph could be brought before Pharaoh. Of course, that will have to wait until chapter 41. But the point is, Joseph was not only able to discern these things, but he was willing to take action. He was willing to act. He was willing to ask about the men's well-being when he discerned that something was disturbing them. He was willing to interpret the dreams. He was willing to take the opportunity to ask this man for help. 
If you have the discernment to know that something is right and good, and then you don't act on it, what good did the discernment do you? If you discern that an ungodly cultural agenda is being pushed in a certain book, and then you let your kids read it anyway, the discernment did you no good. If you discern that a certain television show that's wildly popular is celebrating sin and wickedness and you decide to watch it anyway, you're letting your mind think the world's thoughts after it and your discernment has done you no good. Effective discernment must be accompanied by a willingness to act on the truth that has been discerned. The fifth component of discernment is Joseph's humility before God and men. He didn't tell the butler and the baker how wise he was, bragging, hey, I can interpret those dreams. Rather, he said the interpretation belongs to God. Therefore, when he offered to interpret, he was giving the credit to God, not taking it for himself. He was saying, this is God's wisdom, not my own. And when he asks the butler for help, he asks for kindness, not repayment. Notice that in verse 14. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. He didn't think the butler owed him something. He's asking for kindness. This this is humility. This is the same sort of humility that we later see in King Solomon. In 1 Kings 3, verse 7, it said Solomon is praying. He says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? So Solomon is showing humility, the same sort of humility that Joseph does. He's asking God for discernment so that he may be a better servant for God's people, not for the sake of his own glory. And this is one of the major problems with so-called discernment ministries or discernment blogs in our day. First, they often announce judgments against other believers, against pastors, against ministries, without fully understanding the circumstances. They don't have all the details. They don't know all the information. I've seen these sorts of discernment ministries launch attacks against John MacArthur or other pastors or other ministries because of some scandal that has come out. But these people don't have all the facts. They're not there. They don't understand all the information, but they're quick to pronounce judgment. And they do so with pride rather than humility, almost a glee at finding fault with someone. But if you're going to practice discernment by announcing to the world that someone else is a false teacher or has done this a grievous thing, you better have your facts straight. And you ought to approach the entire situation with humility. Otherwise, you're not being discerning. You're simply being prideful and accusing the brethren which is the work of Satan, not God. True spiritual discernment will identify itself by the humility of the one doing the discerning. And finally, the sixth component of discernment is a devotion to the truth. 
The butler's interpretation was good news. It was easy to give him this interpretation and joyful for him to receive it. Not so with the baker's dream. His interpretation was hard news, and I'm sure it was not joyful to receive. Just as we saw last week that resisting sin and temptation requires truthfulness about what sin is, discernment requires a devotion to the truth. Now, there's no point in discerning between right and wrong, good and evil, if you're not going to be honest about it. Joseph could have told the baker what he wanted to hear, but instead he told him the truth. And that took a certain amount of courage. In the long run, it was better for Joseph, for Pharaoh, for Joseph's family, and ultimately the entire Egyptian nation. Imagine if he had just told the baker what he wanted to hear, and then it didn't happen the way Joseph said. Would the butler have recommended Joseph to Pharaoh later? He only had a 50-50 batting record at that point. Joseph told the truth. If you discern the wrongness of something and then you excuse it by saying, well, it's not that bad. I mean, it's almost right. What's the harm? Well, at that point, your discernment has failed you. As Spurgeon said in that quote I shared at the beginning, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. The difference between right and wrong is usually fairly easy to spot. It's the difference between right and almost right, between true and imposter that takes practical and careful discernment. And that difference is important. It's the difference between law and gospel. It's the difference between faith accompanied by works and faith plus works. It's the difference between thinking of something as a little white lie, like we discussed last week, or recognizing it as a great wickedness against God. If discernment is to be of value, it must be communicated with honesty. Humble honesty, loving honesty, but honesty nonetheless. Remember that passage in Ephesians that I read earlier where Paul said that we shouldn't be children? He goes on to say this. He says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, grow up in all things into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love is an act of discernment, an act of spiritual maturity, making light of error, overlooking sin or a worldly agenda won't serve your sanctification in the long run or the salvation and sanctification of your children or grandchildren. Discernment is seeing things as God sees them, pursuing the truth, and it means having a devotion to the truth of God and the courage to speak that truth when necessary, not for your own glory, but for God's glory and the good of others. When it comes to discerning false teaching, a devotion to the truth of God is literally the difference between eternal life and eternal death. The practice of discernment is a spiritual discipline that requires faith, wisdom, and courage. It must be practiced with humility and a devotion to the truth of God. The Lord willing, we will explore this idea further next week, but for now, Let us pray that God would grant us understanding hearts 
as Solomon did, that we should no longer be children, but prove ourselves to be mature, to be skilled in the word of righteousness, to discern between right and almost right, to hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Seeing things as God sees them, knowing the truth and discerning that which is right from that which is almost right, but wholly wrong for the glory of the one who declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray.